Good morning, church. Hope that you guys are doing well, having a good Sunday so far. Before we uh, jump into this amazing and full passage, just two announcements for us. Uh, the first one is, if you have signed up to serve in the Backyard Bible Clubs and, uh, and, and want to go to the training, that is today. So just a reminder that that's happening after this service and in the gym. And I also want to say that it's not too late, okay, to engage in the, the Backyard Bible Clubs for this summer. And this is really a all-hands-on-deck, church-wide initiative uh, for us to go next door uh, with our neighbors with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in my opinion, this is really low-hanging fruit. And, uh, and so this isn't just for people with children in their neighborhoods, okay? So if you're someone who's out there thinking, well, I don't have any kids in my, in my neighborhood, so I can't possibly participate in this. Well, that's not our vision. Our vision is for every single person to engage in a backyard Bible club in some way. And so what that's going to demand is that you partner with other people. And so we don't want just one person. We don't want like Todd and Paula Gates to do all the work and for them to host, to teach, and to do the crafts and all that. There's a role for each and every person to play. And for some, it's hosting, some it's teaching, some it's doing the crafts, some it's with the food, some it's with the games. But we'd love to see this uh, more of an intergeneration ministry of the young serving with the older. And so right now we have about seven uh, host uh, family houses that, um, that are ready, and so we need some volunteers to, to kind of staff those. We'd love to get 10, though, so if you want to host, if you've got young children, but you don't want to do everything, that's okay. We've got people who'd love to teach and do the other things. Okay, so that training is today. Even if you want more information, you can stop by uh, after this service. But the second announcement is, uh, is you will receive a, uh, an email sometime today or maybe even tomorrow of a church-wide, all-campus-wide survey. Um, and, and the reason for this survey is because um, God is bringing uh, opportunity after opportunity to College Park, uh, whether that's in the form of more campuses or more churches to adopt or local and global uh, opportunities. There are baptisms and conversions happening at all of the campuses. And, uh, and with our health, but because of God's grace, we just have, we have so many opportunities, and really we've got too many opportunities than we do have energy and resources. And so what we want from you, from the congregation, is for you to help us navigate uh, what opportunities to pursue and what opportunities to say no or, or not yet. And, uh, and so I just want to encourage you to fill out this survey. We want to hear from you of, of what your pulse is in the Fishers and Noblesville, kind of this northeast part. Uh, of the community, and uh, just what the needs are, uh, so that we can follow kind of the, the spirit of God as he leads our congregation. It's, uh, we're congregationally governed, and so he speaks through the people we believe, and so we want to kind of bend our ear and, and hear what, what you have to say. So that'll be coming out today or tomorrow, and then we'll review that at our uh, May members meeting, which is May 21st, and uh, so we'll be back in this room with uh, another pitch-in and uh, I'm sure Heidi Sweet will promise some root beer floats again to get the kids and the families there. And, uh, and so we'll kind of talk about some of the, the results and then cast vision in the fall uh, of what we're hearing from you guys. Okay, so exciting things. And uh, with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll jump in. God, we do thank you and praise you for the forgiveness that you offer through Jesus. God, we thank you that by his blood and by his wounds that we are healed Lord, that your grace not only saves us, but Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see that your grace also has the power to transform us. And so Lord, I pray as we look at this topic of Christ's likeness of maturing 
God, would you give us eyes to see your word? We pray that you would make your word come alive in this moment. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, whenever you go through a transition in life, whether that's a new job, a new relationship, maybe you're moving, or you have some type of of transfer, some type of, of change in your life, what is absolutely necessary in order for a successful transition is making sure that you have the right attitude and the right kind of thinking. Now, for me, one of the biggest transitions that uh, I feel like I've gone through in my life is transitioning from living in a college dorm with a bunch of, of male athletes to graduating, and then three weeks later, I, I move in with my wife. I get, we get married, and I, and I move in with Lindsay. And that was a huge transition for me personally because I went from living with athletes in the college dormitory. Okay, enough said there. And then I move in with this woman who only grew up with, with three sisters and no brothers. Okay, and so uh, men, you might be able to relate with me on this, but man, those first couple of months, there were a lot of things that, that Lindsay, that, that my wife pointed out to me that I had been doing wrong for most of my life. And uh, she did this out of a lot of grace and out of a lot of love. But, but man, I just came to the conclusion, like, my whole life was like a failure. Uh, you know, there was a definition of cleanliness that I had no knowledge of. Like, I just thought, yeah, you know, you know we'll just pick up. You know, that's, that's what it means to be clean. And yet there's layers to what it means to have a, a clean house. And there are things to do with, with the toilet paper uh, that, that I did not know that you had to do. And, and this is free for you men. You know, the toilet paper doesn't go bottom up. It goes top down. Okay, that's obviously the correct way of putting the toilet paper in. Uh, but it's so many, there's so many like adjustments. Like when you get married, you move from kind of living as a single person to, to a married person. Like there's so many adjustments and necessary changes that, that at least I had to make in order to, uh, to have kind of a su- successful home. Now, for me, it all started with right thinking. It started with the correct attitude and the correct expectations. Like, I had to look at the toilet paper completely differently. I had to have this understanding of, like, okay, how do I do this? And, and what do I do with, with kind of a, a smelly workout shirt? I can't just spray cologne on that because that's obviously not clean. So I had to go through all of these adjustments that were right here in my mind that then impacted how I live. Now, in a similar fashion, uh, the Apostle Peter, in our passage here this morning, is going to make a similar point, that when you have a transfer, when you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of, of God, that there are necessary adjustments that need to be made in how you live your life, and it really begins with the correct thinking. It starts with the right kind of attitude and the right kind of expectations, To the end of chapter 3, what we learned from last week from from Dustin is that Jesus Christ really did die. He really suffered, and he really rose again, and he really did ascend it, and he's at the right hand of the Father with full authority. And so the question that Peter's kind of transitioning to chapter 4 is, okay, so what? Like, Like, now what? How does that impact how you live your life if that is true? And so the way that Peter transitioned is he gives us this picture of what it means to grow in Christ's likeness. That because Jesus really did die, that he really did rise again, that he really did ascend, that that has implications on how we live our lives, and it starts with correct thinking. In fact, Peter's going to show us 
that there is, an, uh, there is a relationship between right thinking plus right desiring that then impacts right living. In fact, here's our main idea, our big idea this morning that I'll spend our time together unpacking. But growing in Christ's likeness involves right thinking and right desiring, which results in strange and selfless living. Okay, so that's where we're going today, and, uh, and, and we'll unpack four aspects uh, to this big idea. So let's look together at verse 1. Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, when you think about uh, what is involved in Christ's likeness, it's not just about living and obeying. It's not just kind of having a list of things to go and do, but Christ's likeness involves right thinking and right desiring. And so this first aspect that Peter points out is we need to have armed thinking or correct thinking. What Peter does here is he says, you need to arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Well, the same way of thinking as what? Well, as the same mind that Christ had when he suffered in the flesh. Now, we, we're also told throughout the New Testament to have the mind of Christ, like uh, Philippians 2.5. But Peter here does not just say, have the mind of Christ. He says, arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. That there's, there's something more to it than just having the mind of Christ. There's something that we need to do. In fact, this term, arm yourselves, has military connotations. And we know throughout the New Testament that the Christian life is often described as the life of a warrior, that we're supposed to be engaged in battle against sin and against the enemy. We know that from Ephesians 6 and Romans 6, even 2 Corinthians 6 alludes to that, that there's this level of intentionality and preparedness, this preparation that begins in our minds. We really get this picture of, of soldiers who are preparing for battle or athletes who are preparing to compete, that there's this sense of wanting to arm yourselves before you go and engage. This reminds me of, of playing college basketball. My college coach would always tell us, hey, make sure that you are in the zone before you go out there and compete on the court. Like, get in the zone. And what he meant by that was, hey, make sure that you are preparing yourselves to compete Make sure that you understand your role. Make sure you understand your strategy and the other team's strategy before you go out there. That it demands a, a level of intentionality, of training, of discipline, of, of being prepared. In the same way that you wouldn't just walk out to battle unprepared or walk, on, walk onto the basketball court unprepared, we cannot engage in the Christian life and, and expect victory over sin if we are not prepared. If our, if our minds are not armed in the same way as Christ Jesus. And so the question is, what, what does that look like to arm yourselves with the mind of Christ? Well, I think Paul kind of shed some light on this in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 5. It says, Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds that we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. See, that's what we want. Like, that is a picture of what it means to arm yourselves with the same way of thinking as Christ, that we are taking every thought captive. 
that we are bringing every thought into submission and evaluating it. Is this good for me or will this harm my relationship with the Lord? And yet, like, how do we do that? Like, how practically do we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ and take every thought captive? Well, I came up with an acronym uh, this morning that hopefully will be of some help for us as we think about what it means to apply and to practically engage in arming ourselves. So let's follow the the word lead here, L-E-A-D. So what it means to arm ourselves practically, let's start with L. There's an element of learning. Like when you're trying to arm yourselves with the mind of Christ, it demands that you immerse yourselves in the scriptures. It demands that if you're trying to have the mind of Christ, you need to know the life of Christ. Like, for example, if you want to apply and claim the promises of God, you've got to be able to know the promises of God to begin with. So I just want to encourage you and and even exhort you to develop kind of a, a strategy or map out a way for you to grow in the knowledge of God, to not settle for just kind of hitting that ceiling of how much knowledge you have about God, which which is a temptation for us all. That we almost get to this point where, okay, I think I know enough about God, and then we just stay at this point for the remainder of our lives. Just want to encourage you to kind of push through and grow in your knowledge about who God is. And look, we, we do this in other areas of our lives. Like if you're trying to, to work out, like you, chances are you have a workout plan, you have a workout strategy. Like if you're trying to, uh, to map out meals for the week to cook, like you're mapping out, okay, what do I want to cook on Friday or Saturday, Sunday? And then you go to the grocery store based on that. See, we come up with plans and strategies for other areas of our life. Do you have a strategy for learning and growing in your knowledge about God? Because so much of what it means to arm yourselves has to do with making sure that you're learning and you're growing more about Jesus. The E here stands for examine, to examine. Part of of arming yourself is is looking at your life and making sure that you don't have any any blind spots or weaknesses. That if you want to be strong as you engage with sin, you need to be able to examine yourselves with the Word of God to ensure that you don't have any blind spots in your life. And so we, we treat the Word of God as this mirror that looks into our lives and exposes things that we need to grow in and that we need to change. This really, I think this speaks into kind of our approach or the posture that we need to have over the Word of God. That, that as we read it, we say, God, search me. God, inspect me. God, God, examine my life. Expose things in me that I need to change because I want to be armed with the mind of Christ. So we need to examine ourselves. The A here stands for adjust. So based on your learning, based on the Word of God examining you, we need to make the necessary adjustments and the necessary changes to ensure that we are armed with the mind of Christ. And look, this also speaks to kind of your expectation as you read the Word of God. Like if you're, if you're reading the Word of God and this, and this book is not consistently making you uncomfortable, then, then you're probably not reading it correctly. Like if you're, if you're reading this book and it's not convicting you, it's not showing you areas that you need to adjust and change with, you're not reading it through the correct lens. Like almost on a daily basis, when I'm reading the Word of God, this book is just kicking my butt. This book is just exposing things in me that I need to grow, that I need to change, that I need to alter. And it kind of stems from the right kind of thinking as you approach the text of God. Search me. 
God, show me. God, help me to adjust because I want to be armed with the mind of Christ. And then D here. D stands for a determine. That this posture of like arming yourselves, like you're, you're ready to engage in battle and you are determined not to fall into sin. You're determined to kind of draw a line in the sand and say, look, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to have this conversation. I'm not going to put myself in that situation that you're determined not to allow sin to, to reign in your body, that there's this sense of, of kind of this, this engagement, this determination uh, for holiness and godliness. Like, I just want to encourage this morning, like, if you, if you find yourself losing more battles than winning as far as temptation, or if you find yourself that you're suffering, but you're not suffering well, like, could it be that you're not arming yourselves with the mind of Christ? Like, could it be that you might be too relaxed or, or dare I say, may, maybe lazy as far as having the right thinking and applying the mind of Christ in your life? See, there's this element, there's this, there's this implication of, of wanting to pursue the mind of Christ because it will help you in your battle against sin. Peter even says that if you have this kind of thinking, you're willing to suffer in the flesh so that you have ceased from sin. Did you catch that at the end of verse 1 there? Like, that's kind of a troubling phrase. Like, what does it mean to cease from sin? Well, Peter's point is not that if you have this mindset, then you're going to be perfectly sinless. That would violate other places in the New Testament. But what Peter means is that your commitment to suffering well, to not fall away from Christ, is evidence that you have broken away from a life of sin, that you have, you have ceased being controlled and being dominated by sin. In other words, if you're willing to be mocked, and persecuted and, and ridiculed for being a follower of Jesus, if you're willing to engage and battle against sin, that's proof that, that sin no longer reigns in you. You're no longer enslaved and chained to sin, that you've ceased from sin. And this all begins with right thinking. Well, Peter not only shows us to have right thinking or armed thinking, but number two is that we need to have right desires or redirected desires. Look with me at verse 2, what Peter has to say. He says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So again, Peter's helping us. He wants us to live like Jesus. He wants us to obey Jesus, but he doesn't just say, hey, go imitate this or go live this out. He first starts with right thinking, and now he's getting into right desiring here. And what Peter highlights here, he says, don't live out your human passions that lead to a lifestyle characterized by verse 3, but redirect or funnel your passions and your desires towards the will of God. Like he's saying, like, your passions are not bad. They just need to be directed toward the glory of God and toward the will of God. Peter's highlighting how incredibly powerful our passions and our desires actually are we, just, we need to make sure that we're directing them towards the right object or to the right destination. Peter would say, direct them towards the will of God. I love how, how C.S. Lewis talks about our desires here, and it wouldn't be a, a good sermon without a good C.S. Lewis quote. But he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak, that we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition 
when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He says, we are far too easily pleased. See, what C.S. Lewis is getting at here is that your desires are not bad. They just need to be funneled toward God, not towards living for yourself, not settling for garbage and the sin of life, or how C.S. Lewis puts it, for mud pies in a slum, but to but to funnel them towards the glory and the will of God or a holiday at the sea. He says, you're settling. You're far too easily pleased. So we need to redirect our desires towards the will of God. And yet the question is like, how do you do that? How do you ensure that your desires are going towards the glory of God? Well, I would argue that it again begins with right thinking. It begins in your mind and in your attitude. See, when you, when you fill your mind with the glory of Jesus, with the beauty of Jesus, his immense worth and his, and his greatness, like that's going to do something to your desires. That's going to inflame your desires. That's going to stir up your affections for him, which then will impact your living. See, right thinking plus right desiring will result in right living. But it begins with what, what you're filling your mind with. I love how Jen Wilkin put it. She says that, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. Like your heart can't possibly love Jesus and be impacted with Jesus if you don't know about Jesus. Or let me give you another illustration. When I first started getting to know Lindsay, and this is before we were, we were dating, in order for me to pursue her and start dating her, I had to have a level of knowledge about her. In order for my uh, my desires and my affections and my passions for her to, to kind of come alive, I had to have the right kind of knowledge, the right characteristics, the right attributes about who Lindsay was. And the more that I got to know her, the more that my desires were impacted, which led to my pursuit of her, that I, I eventually started dating her and pursuing her. But it started with correct thinking, that right thinking impacts right desiring, which leads to right living which now leads to our third point in our big idea. This actually leads to strange living. So right thinking plus right desiring leads to strange living. And this is really towards those outside the church. Let's start in verse 3. Peter says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Let me just stop there for a moment. That, that word for that he begins verse 3 with, he's using that to explain why it is that we should live for the will of God in verse 2. That Peter is saying, for the time that is past suffices. And what he means by that is your life before Jesus, how you were, you were dead in your sins, you were living for yourself, living according to the flesh. He's like, we're done with that. Like, don't go back to that. Like, been there, done that. That has sufficed, and we're moving on to living for God in his glory. Like, he's saying, don't go back there. It makes no sense for Christ to redeem you to then go back and live for the things that he redeemed you out of. It doesn't make any sense to live as a slave. Or as one pastor put it, to say that I love grace, but I don't really care about Christ's likeness, is to say that I like freedom, but I'll stay a slave. 
that there's a, there's a point in our lives where we say, I'm, I'm not going back to that type of lifestyle. Like, I'm done with that. Like, you draw a line in the sand and you say, I'm a new creation, therefore I need to live like it. The question for you this morning, have you, have you done that in your life? Have you drawn that line in the sand and said, I'm not, I'm not going back to that activity. I'm not going back to that place. I'm not going back to that type of thinking. I love how John Stott kind of describes the, the, the Christian life. He was a, an English pastor in the 1900s. He talks about how every believer has volume one and volume two in their life. That volume one describes your life before Jesus, that you were without hope, that you were dead in your sins, that you were living for your flesh, and then Christ saves you, and volume two is your life with Jesus. And what Peter is saying here is don't live volume two out of the priorities and desires and mindset of volume one. Like, we're done with volume one. We're past that. Christ died for that. Don't go back living for that. It's, it's sufficed. Or as the psalmist put it, that the Lord has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. Or my translation, that the Lord has taken volume one of your life and he has removed it as far as the east is from the west, so don't go back to it. We're done and we're living towards Christ's likeness. But when we do that, Peter says, it's going to impact the way that the world views you. Like your godliness, your refusal to, to not live according to volume one will impact how unbelievers look at you and consider you. Look at verse four. Look what he says. He says, with respect to this, they, referring to the world, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, what is Peter saying there? Peter is saying that when you refuse to live according to, to volume one, the world will look at your life and they will think that you are strange. They will think that your godliness is weird. Look how the, the New King James Version translates this. Yeah, I do read the New King James Version on, on account. It's a good translation. But he says this. It says, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. See, Peter is saying that your godliness, your commitment to holiness and Christ-likeness will cause a watching world to look at your life and it will cause them to scratch their heads. They, they won't know what to do with your godliness because you're not participating in the same type of sinful and immoral living that you used to live in. And look, this is, this is a great reminder for us that our identity as followers of Jesus, we are strangers and we are exiles in this world. We don't have the same type of passions and desires and priorities and values of the culture around us, that we are called to live differently. We are called to live a godly life. And when we do that, Peter says, look, don't be surprised if you get made fun of. Don't be surprised when people think that you're strange and that you're weird. Don't be surprised when you experience unjust suffering because you are godly. Look, this is why arming yourselves with the mind of Christ is so incredibly important. Because this whole idea of, of living a godly life and, and for the world to consider it weird will become more and more normative for us in the day and age in which we live. That our category for being an exile right now might just be only theological. 
Like experientially, we don't really feel like exiles yet, but there is a, a day and age that is coming in which it will be normative for us to be made fun of because we are a follower of Jesus. It, it will be normative for, for us to be ridiculed because we believe every word in this book. That, that there is a day and age that's coming where it's, it's just not going to be acceptable to be a Christian. And we're starting to see kind of the, the unraveling of Christianity from the core of American culture. And we're starting to see that, look, it's just not cool to be a Christian these days. And, and look, I, I just want to encourage us this morning, like that's really good news. That, that shouldn't cause fear in your heart or kind of a doomsday mentality. That's good news that people will look at our godliness and think that it's weird because it will platform opportunities for us to share the gospel. And another, another reason why that's good news is because the, the type of people that want to, to, to be followers of Jesus, yet they live a double life, they will no longer be able to hide. That if you, if you claim to be a Christian and, and you're ridiculed because of that, those people that, that, that are living kind of a double life, they're they can't hide anymore. And so the, the, the purity of the church and the purity of the word of God will be front and center, that it's going to be good news. I love how Russell Moore kind of describes the, the strangeness of Christianity. He says that Christianity isn't normal anymore, and that's good news. The book of Acts, like the Gospels before, it shows us that the Christianity thrives when it is, as Kierkegaard put it, a sign of contradiction that only a strange gospel can differentiate itself from the worlds we construct. But the strange, freakish, foolish old gospel is what God uses to save people and to resurrect churches, that we must learn to be strange enough to have a prophetic voice, but connected enough to prophesy to those who need to hear, that we need to be those who know both how to warn and to welcome, to weep and to dream. See, according to, to Russell Moore here, and I think what Peter is getting at is part of the purpose of your strangeness, which, which comes from being godly, is so that you can have opportunities to display the gospel to those who are watching you. That your strangeness actually creates a platform for the gospel to go forth. Because look, it, it's strange not to live like the world. And so when people look at that, they're going to be asking, why do you live so differently? And we've already kind of seen that in chapter 3, verse 15. But the world, when, when they look at how you live, they're, they're going to consider it strange when your coworkers ask you to go out after work and just get hammered and you say, no thanks. And they ask you, well, why? Like You have a beautiful moment to lean in and to share the gospel. Or, or as your neighbors are kind of gossiping about other neighbors, and, and you choose not to participate in that, they're going to think that's weird and strange. And they're going to ask you, why aren't you participating in this? What a beautiful moment to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like when you're, when you're sharing the gospel with a friend and you say that Jesus is the only way that's going to be offensive, they're going to think that's strange. They're going to think, no, no, we're all inclusive. That's a beautiful moment to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so look, the, the question that we are confronted with in this passage is what about your life does the world consider strange because of your godliness? What is the, the unbelievers around you, what do they look at and say, man, that, that's really different than how I live my life 
Can you explain more? Why do you live that way? Like, does your, does your godliness create kind of a weirdness? Not, not because you forget to put on deodorant, but because you believe that Jesus is the only way and that this book is actually true. Or are you kind of living a life where you're, you, you kind of blend in with, with the world and, and you might go to church on Sunday, but there's nothing remarkably different about your conduct? See, Peter is calling us to, to live a type of, of strange living that starts with right thinking and that, that then is impacted by right desiring that impacts the godliness in our lives. In fact, you might be here this morning, you might not be a, a believer, and, and this whole thing is strange. <laughs> like this whole Christianity is weird to you that, that we study a book that's, that's thousands of years old. And this has full authority, has supreme power in our lives. I just want to encourage you, those of you who think that this whole thing is weird, it's because we believe that Jesus is the hope of the world. Believe that Jesus died for for our sins, that Jesus actually rose again, and that he reigns in full victory, full authority in heaven. And maybe the weirdest thing about Christianity is that God offers you free grace, that he offers you eternal life that you cannot work for that you cannot earn. How strange is that? But that's a beautiful scandal of grace, is that God offers free eternal life to all of those who believe. So if you're not a believer, and this is weird, like it's just getting started, but it's a beautiful, beautiful message of Jesus. So Peter says that, look, the reason why this is important, the reason why our strangeness, our godliness is important, that creates a platform for the gospel, is because of verse 5 that there is a judgment that's coming. Peter says that a just judge who we will have to give an account to. Look, this reality should further inspire us and motivate us to live kind of this strange godliness out in the world. And then verse 6 here, Peter is essentially kind of summarizing the first five verses. That he says, for this is why the gospel was preached, even those uh, who are dead. Now, he doesn't mean literally he preaches to the dead, but those who were preached the gospel and then, then died, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Peter's point here is that the gospel actually provides hope that this life is not all there is, that death does not have the final word for believers, that even though we'll die in the flesh, that we'll be raised to life. And that's good news for the world, that the watching world does not need Christians who find a way to blend in with culture. But the culture, the world needs Christians who have a strange godliness that points to the hope that we have in Jesus. And it starts with right thinking and right desiring. Now, not only does that lead to a type of strange living, but it also leads to selfless living. Okay, now this, verses 7 through 11, Peter uh, kind of pivots here and he starts talking about the type of living with those inside the church. And so strange living has to do with those outside the church in verses 3 through 6. 7 through 11 deal with how do we live this out with those in our community inside the church. Now, Peter, what he does in verses 7 through 11, what I see is that he kind of categorizes selfless living in three ways. Uh, the first way is, is having kind of a sober-mindedness, a committed prayer life. And then number two, having a life of love that's demonstrated in hospitality. 
And then number three, verses 10, 10 through 11, is living a life of service by using the gifts that God has given you for the building up of the church. So verse seven, prayer, verses eight through nine, love, and 10 through 11, service. But I wanna draw your attention to verse seven here. Peter says that the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Let me just stop there for a moment. Let me just highlight again that Peter is using this concept of time in order to motivate us. That he's saying that the end is at hand, that, that time is short. Therefore, live out this godly life in strange living and in selfless living. That when you understand that time is really short, it's going to impact your prayer life. It's going to impact how you love other people, and it's going to impact how you view the gifts that God has given you. Now, we, we've, all, we've all been there when you're kind of in that situation where time is short, like you're running late, you know, or, or you need to get someplace, or you lost something, but, but you're kind of running behind time. Like, it kind of creates two different reactions, that you can kind of have either this frantic, illogical craziness, like you're running around with your head cut off, or this type of, of focus starts to kick in. Like you have like this concentration of like, okay, I need to find my keys, get my shoes on, get in the car and go, where you have like this sober-mindedness, like this self-controlled living because you're running behind on time. And what Peter is saying here is don't live your life in that frantic, illogical craziness, but live your life being self-controlled and being sober-minded. And I, I feel like in my home, in my stage of life with two young kids, like I I feel like I'm always running around with my head cut off. Like there's just this frantic craziness. And I, I can't imagine the, the bishops and the gates and the hillens. You guys got four, five, six kids. Like you guys are probably just like, it's a win if we get everybody out of the door with clothes on. Like that's a win for us. But this type of understanding that time is short needs to thrust us into having a urgency in how we live our lives. And the first area that, that you'll see is in your prayer life. And look, we'll, we'll get to, to the prayer life more in chapter 5. And so let me move on to, uh, to verses um, not, uh, 8 and 9 here as he talks about love. Uh, Peter starts to shift. He starts to talk about how do you live a selfless life with those inside the church? And we already looked at five traits in, in chapter 3, verse 8, that should characterize us. But look at verse 8 as he just continues to unpack this idea. He says, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, verse 8, you, you read that, that love covers a multitude of sins. Like, what does Peter mean by that? Does Peter mean that, that our loving others can actually atone for people's sins? Like, no, that can't mean that. That would violate other places in the New Testament. But I think what Peter is getting at here is that when we, love of, when we love others, the sins and offenses of others are overlooked. That as we love people who offend us, we, we kind of cover over their sin or the offense. And so the response, if you get offended by somebody or someone offends you, the correct response is not to keep score of that. It's not to, to tally that on a scorecard, but Peter's call here is to keep loving Keep loving earnestly, persistently, and consistently. And if you need an example of how to love somebody, he says, look, show hospitality. Hospitality was, was one of the, the hallmarks of true Christian community. This is a great way to demonstrate 
your love for other people. This is also a great way to demonstrate that you have genuine faith, that we learn that in Romans 12, 13, and, and in 1 Timothy 3. And look, church, I just want to encourage you this morning that the act of hospitality, of, of inviting people into your home and using the gifts that God has given you is one of the most beautiful, powerful, and, and tangible ways to put the gospel on display. Like when you use your home as a vehicle to, to put action, the, the powerful nature of the gospel, it is, it is absolutely beautiful. And, and I love Peter here. He, he doesn't make this optional. There's this imperatible uh, kind of feel to us, this command of show hospitality. And he doesn't say, look, just show hospitality to the people who are in your life stage. No, he doesn't say show hospitality when you get out of that crazy season of life. He says, show hospitality and do so without grumbling. That there's something about showing hospitality that, that connects the display of the gospel because when we understand that we used to be strangers to God and God drew us in and adopted us into his family, we live that out as we bring in people into our home and we love them and we exercise our gifts. That we don't just exercise our gifts and hospitality with people in our life stage, but we have people who are single over, we have people who have young families, older families, people who are old, anybody, we have them over to our home in order to be hospitable. And look, for me as a, as a pastor here, like I, I would much rather have 500 people who are engaged in hospitality on a regular basis than 15 programs and events. I would rather have our church be a place that is hospitable, where we're inviting one another over into our homes. That, that would actually probably do more in our Christian maturity than a bunch of programs and events. And really, one, one is commanded in Scripture, and the other one is not. That we're commanded to be hospitable because it puts the gospel on display and it builds true community. I mean, imagine if, if we were that type of church where we're all engaged in, in, in the act of hospitality, where we're building that type of community with one another and not just in similar life stage. And Peter moves on here in verses 10, 11. He kind of helps us, okay, if, if you're engaged in hospitality, do you have gifts to offer? And he would say yes. Look at, look at verses 10 and 11. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, Peter says that by God's grace, he, God has given each believer a different gift. And if you notice, some, some believe that Peter is kind of presenting these two categories that every spiritual gift falls into that every spiritual gift, it can either be categorized as a speaking gift, like teaching or encouragement or prophesying, or it's a, it's a serving gift. Now, for a more specific list of spiritual gifts, you can look at Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12. But the point here is that there is a diversity of gifts, that we don't all have the same gifts. But the bottom line is, is that each believer has been given a gift, and so use it. And so you've been given a gift from God who knows exactly how you are wired. And he's given you that gift for you to be a good steward and to put that into action to edify the church. So look, if you're a believer here and you're not serving, you're not using your gift, 
you're not only being a bad steward, but you are robbing the church of actually edifying the church by using the gift that God has given you. And look, I, I just want to encourage those of you who are serving, and we have a lot of volunteers, we have a lot of just amazing uh, people who serve on a, on a weekly basis. I, I just first want to thank you. Like being a mobile church, like we have a lot of needs and a lot of opportunities to serve, and many of you do that on a weekly basis. You put forth time and energy, and you invest in this ministry, and I just want to publicly thank you, but also to encourage you that God wants you to serve with the strength that he supplies. And what he means by that is that there is something unique when you are serving and using your gift that you can experience the strength and the power and the presence of God when you put your gift into action. And so what that means, if you're, if you're here and you're not serving, you're not using your gifts, you have kind of a, a consumer mentality, you're missing out on a beautiful way to experience the strength and presence of God in your life. And for those who are serving, like, I know you get tired. Like the setup team, you're here early on Sunday morning or children's ministry, like, you can grow fatigued, and yet I just want to encourage you to lean into the strength that God supplies, that as you're pouring yourself out in different ways and you feel dry or you feel empty, that is exactly where God wants you to be because as you're outpouring, God is pouring in his strength in your life. So if you feel tired, if you feel like you're, you're not running on your own strength, that's a good place to be because you want to be serving on the strength that God gives you. So, so keep pressing into that and keep serving. Now notice what the result is. This, is. this is an amazing close to this passage. Verse 11b, that as we have right thinking, right desiring, we're, we're living the, kind of this gospel strangeness out and we're using our gifts, Peter says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that an amazing picture of, of church, what the church should be? That as we have this godly strangeness with people outside the church, and we're living out this selfless living inside the church, it's so that God gets the glory, God gets the credit, God gets the praise. That the attention is not on us, but we're drawing people's attention and gaze to the glory of God because he rightfully deserves this. And so as we close this morning, I know we went through a lot of verses today. I just want to ask you the question of, of do you have any gaps in your Christ-likeness? Like in your pursuit of, of becoming more and more like Jesus, and you're, you're hearing things about right thinking and right desiring and, and right living, are, are there any gaps, any, any holes in your thinking? Are there any holes in, in your desire? Are you funneling your passions and your desires toward the glory of God? And, and do you have this, this godliness in your life? And maybe you're here today and, and you're thinking, man, I, I do have a consumer mentality. I just kind of come and I go and I don't, I don't serve. And we, we would just love to present an opportunity for you to, to, to use the gifts that God has given you to, to serve in this church. And so there are different cards that are out either on that table or on your seat that kind of give you a list of, of needs that we have in our church. just want you to take that card and and maybe take it home tonight, pray over it, talk about it with people in your life about ways that you can participate in the life of our church. And maybe you look at that list and you think, man, I've been, I've been gifted by God, but, 
but there's not an option here for me to use uh, my gifts. I just want to encourage you, write something on there that would. Like, have the freedom to, to write whatever it is that you want to write in there so that you can serve, so that you can actually use the gifts that God has given you. But just take that as an action step here this morning. And so let me, let me pray to close this, and then we'll stand and, and sing God's praise. Lord God, we thank you so much for the power of your word. God, we thank you for just this beautiful passage. Lord, we thank you that you have called us into a, a type of living that, that is not out of fear, but it is out of confidence because King Jesus rules. He is seated at the, at the right hand of the Father with full authority. And so, God, I pray that because that is true, that that would further shape us as, as College Park fishers, that we would be the salt and the light in this world, that we would have a gospel kind of weirdness in our culture. And Lord, I pray that you'd use us, that we would be a, a people who are living out a selfless life so that you would get all the glory. So, God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for an opportunity to give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.